Hello, it's Art Fern with the Tea Time Bible Geek. I thought uh, we could um, use a little variety there, probably as little as possible. Uh, here's a bunch of questions. Uh, this is from Chris Falk. He says, you mentioned the Christadelphians briefly in a recent episode. I was a Christadelphian for 10 years, and it's very unusual to hear them mentioned by someone who is not connected to them somehow. I find it strange that the men who start these belief systems rarely have any family left in a few generations that still believe in what they taught. What's your opinion on this? Uh, well, one thing I can't resist mentioning, the um, Christadelphians had one uh, uh, famous student, uh, Hugh Schoenfield, who wrote The Passover Plot and many other very, very fascinating books. I just love his translation, The Authentic New Testament, and uh, really, really fascinating. Uh, well, he uh, was a Jew. I I'm not sure if he was secular or whatever as he was brought up. I don't remember. But uh, he was... He was studying with Christadelphians and in the process came to believe that though he didn't convert to Christianity, he did believe that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Uh, and uh, he always believed that thereafter. Fascinating. But why don't these um, sectarian founders have a long list of uh, descendants who still espouse the uh, the doctrines. Well, in, to the degree to which that's true, and I've never looked into it, I, obviously you have though, Chris, I would say it's uh, one cameo of the tendency of sectarian groups to assimilate after a generation or two. Uh, they uh, they break off the, the parent church because uh, they feel it has become too lax or it has become heretical or, or whatever. Um, but uh, And so they have a kind of a radical stance, uh, at least theologically, against uh, over against the, the parent group. Uh, possibly socially radical, too, that uh, they may limit contact with outsiders, they may have a great deal of group interaction, maybe even just intermarriage within the group, uh, and um, their only contact with outsiders is to witness to them and uh, so forth. But um, and and they may feel hostile toward the uh, the powers that be the 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 government. They may feel like it's the beast, and and they ought to not pledge allegiance, not serve in the army. Jehovah's Witnesses would be an example of that. Well, um, after a generation or two, they find they just can't hack it. They can't uh, maintain that kind of isolationism uh, psychologically or socially, and they either drift back to the parent denomination or their own sect begins to make compromises with the and, and to reassimilate to the values of the more staid, settled in, um, a, 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 a acclimated, I guess I should say, um, lifestyle and belief style. Their zeal cools. Uh, the uh, initial egalitarianism uh, begins to give way to a hierarchical government within the sect. Uh, and uh, the, the theology may soften, like, uh, for instance, uh, Mormons and Seventh-day Adventists eventually uh, began to 
assimilate to Protestant evangelicalism. Of course, they still have major distinctives, but they, they try to get closer and closer to the uh, group with which they, or the Pentecostals. Uh, the um, I think Gordon Fee himself in the Assemblies of God uh, said there's nothing deader than the standard evangelical church, and yet then you know, the AG uh, adopted a very uh, under-the-thumb hierarchy in their denomination with position papers their clergy were expected to accept and, and so forth. Uh, so uh, I'm guessing that's kind of what happens. The uh, the descendants may just decide, I don't empathize with this anymore, I'm, I'm out of here. Uh, the the radicalism just seems like a lost cause. So that'd be my guess for what it's worth. Okay, um, Chris Cheshire, uh, the one of the two hosts of the podcast, the religious, the religious nut and the hellbound sinner. Uh, she says, most highly venerated demigod, or most lowly uh, venerated, if you want to go the C.S. Lewis route. I've always puzzled greatly over Revelation chapter 12, both in the first 25 years of my life as a Christian and in the last five years of my life as an atheist. Uh, yeah, last five years of my life as an atheist. I've read and heard much in the way of interpretation of the vast majority of the book of Revelation, from Wesleyans, from evangelicals, fundamentalists, dispensationalists, from Bible historians, and most recently from some of your podcasts. However, it's incredibly rare that I ever come across any attempt to address the meanings within chapter 12. Although verses 7 through 9 describe the war in heaven was my dad's favorite passage to preach on as a pastor. Uh, not uh, sure uh, what sort of violent fantasies he was working out for himself during those sermons. Our v oh, yeah, okay, uh, let me uh, uh, read the chapter here. Uh, it won't take long and uh, might make more sense of the, uh, of the question. Yeah. Okay, it's it's a goodie. I love all of Revelation. And a great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was with child, and she cried out in her pangs of birth in anguish for delivery. And another portent appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems upon his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child, that he might devour her child when she brought it forth. She brought forth a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which to be nourished for one thousand two hundred and sixty days." Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. 
And I heard a voice, uh, sorry, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Rejoice then, O heaven, and you that dwell therein, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had borne the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, uh, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came, or Gaia, Greek, came to the help of the woman, and Gaia opened its mouth and swallowed the river which the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea." And, and he's there to witness the uh, rising of the beast, which is uh, like a duplicate uh, of him. Okay. Um, so now we got it out on the table in front of us. Mm, uh, our verses one through six that, uh, um, that everyone I've heard seems to avoid interpreting, intended to be a more mythological telling of Mary's giving birth to Jesus Christ. I had begun to think so in my late teens and early twenties, interpreting verses 7 through 12 as having taken place during Jesus' time on earth. This fit my then pieced together timeline of Satan, since in the book of Job he is a servant of God, placing his fall from heaven during the earth life of Jesus, most likely directly following the temptation in the wilderness, fit well with a literal interpretation of Jesus' statement in Luke 10:18. I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning, and the benediction offered in Revelation 12, 10 through 12, sounds somewhat similar to Jesus' statements in Luke 10, 19 through 22. If this is the case, then why this revelation passage, why is this, um, wait a minute, uh, why this revelation passage positioned in the midst of a larger narrative prophesying, quote, future, unquote, slash current events in the Roman Empire? Have you also encountered silence from a lot of commentators on this passage, or am I just ignorant of the work out there? How do evangelicals and dispensationalists interpret this passage, especially since they believe Satan was cast from heaven prior to the start of creation? Who would this woman and her child be in that case? Are you aware of any Christian who, interpreting the book of Revelation as events yet to happen in our future, would claim the events described in this passage are also yet to happen and what that would mean? 
if there is a better reading of this passage from a text-critical and historical perspective in the larger context of the entire book, I would appreciate the Mighty Geek's summary of the work that has been done in understanding what this passage would have meant to the intended readers. As always, I love both your podcasts. Keep them coming. Thanks, Chris. Well, uh, for one thing, as uh, we read in um, Bruce J. Molina's terrific book uh, on the genre and message of Revelation, this book is absolutely permeated with ancient astronomy slash astrology. So uh, the pursuit of the woman by the dragon is, uh, and, and she's got the stars of the zodiac over her head and a crown and all that. This represents the motion of the heavens in the night sky, where first you see Virgo, the virgin, and then coming up after her is Draco, or Draco, or however you say it, uh, the, uh, the dragon. And so, as we often find in the Bible, you have the the recurring cyclical events in the heavens made into a one-time story. Uh, and yet, uh, we uh, find some of these elements that are, from chapter 12, that are implied or believed to have happened in primordial time, happening here uh, near the envisioned end of the world. So that implies that it sort of is cyclical, kind of like in The Omen, where um, uh, Ambassador Thorne and his uh, photographer friend go to Megiddo to meet uh, Bugenhagen, the exorcist and archaeologist. And uh, in Megiddo, they see the signs of uh, catastrophic warfare. And uh, one of them asks Bugenhagen, you mean this has happened before? And uh, Bugenhagen says, oh, yes, many times, as, and it will happen many times again. Interesting. Well, um, uh, that's, that's one, one part of it. But uh, let me then follow up with something that Hermann Gunkel, one of the great form critics, uh, said in his terrific book, um, Jeez, uh, it's uh, in German, it's something like uh, Urzeit und Endzeit uh, in uh, Revelation 12 and um, Babylonian mythology or something. Uh, the Urzeit and Endzeit, the primordial time and the end time. And he shows from a lot of evidence that the belief was that the events envisioned for the dawn of time will repeat at the end of time, which would explain why um, there was already a general idea of the fall of Satan or Semyaza or Mastema or whatever you call him in connection with Adam and Eve, etc., and that he had been assigned to one of the lower heavens, hence the prince of the power of the air, right? And... um, uh, but he had been cast out of heaven, and that he he had angelic henchmen with him who were were tossed out as well on their butts. That happened, but it's going to happen again somehow. I mean, that's not too hard to harmonize, because if in the original version he was cast down to the lower heavens, where he still had freedom of movement, the casting out to a lower 
point onto the earth would make sense as a second stage, I guess. But it's essentially the same story repeated, the war in heaven. Um, the same is true for, well, notice also that this chapter retains the ancient conception of, of the Satan's job as we see in the book of Job, that he appears before God despite the, uh, well, in his role as the accuser of our brethren. Yeah, that's what he's supposed to do. Uh, he is patrolling the world looking for hypocrites and phonies who seem to worship God, but their heart's not in it. That's what he was, what the Satan was suggesting about Job, remember? I'm a little uh, suspicious of this guy. Uh, he, yeah, he worships you, but he'd be a fool not to, given the fringe benefits that come from it. I, I bet you that's all he's interested in. Why don't we test him out and see? Right, so that's what they're talking about. But now Christians uh, don't have to worry about that, it says, because he's been booted out of heaven. And then it shifts, or let's say narrows the focus to the martyrs uh, envisioned uh, in the coming tribulation, that uh, they have no need to fear uh, the accusations of Satan for their sins because they've cleansed the, they've wiped out the uh, the red in the ledger because uh, they have followed uh, Jesus into martyrdom. So his saving blood, the blood of the lamb, has washed them clean, but it's only done that because they loved not their lives unto the death. In other words, they were willing to lose their lives to save them, right? And uh, so they're, um, they have nothing to fear from the accuser anymore. Uh, and uh, now also the idea of the woman um, about to bear the child, the dragon about to consume it, and the woman being given, uh, being rescued by Gaia and uh, being given a pair of wings. This goes way back uh, into ancient legend in the, the Mediterranean world. Uh, it, it's the Kronos story again. How does Kronos became, become the, uh, the king of the Titans? Well, uh, and what happens to him once he does? Well, I've mentioned in connection with Genesis and the sons of Noah ganging up on him that um, you had uh, the Titan Uranus uh, or Uranus or whatever you prefer, uh, who means the heavens. And his uh, wife was the Titan um, Gaia, the earth. And... Um, they gave, they, they, uh, had, uh, oh, five brothers, uh, Cronus, Creus, Coius, uh, Iapetus, and I, uh, geez, I forget the other one in Hebrew, it's Baal Hammon. But, uh, nonetheless, they gang up on Uranus and castrate him so that he still exists. The heavens are up there, but he uh, had to have vitality, virility, etc., to be the king. This comes up with the story of Absalom and, and so on, uh, that uh, he cemented his usurpation of David by um, publicly having sex with David's concubines uh, and and so on to show that he had the virility to be, quote, father of his country, so to speak. Well, 
Okay, uh, so um, they displaced him, and Cronus became the king of the Titans. Well, there was a prophecy that the same thing would happen to him, that he would be overthrown by one of his offspring. So whenever his wife, Rhea, who was pretty much a kind of a Xerox of Gaia, uh, an Earth Titaness, whenever she would bring forth uh, one uh, a new son to Cronus, he would devour him, uh, because make a meal of him because he didn't want the kid to grow up to overthrow him. And who knew which one it might be? So whenever there was a new one, uh, he'd get the munchies again. Well, finally, she uh, Rhea conspires with with her nursemaid or somebody I forget uh, to uh, to trick him and to uh, have a a big stone at the ready wrapped in swaddling clothes and to give him that to swallow while they smuggled the infant Zeus away to a particular island, I forget which one. And uh, Rhea was, uh, was given wings to fly away. There's a Jewish version of this in the Lakuta Midrash, where uh, wicked angels are about to uh, rape Istahar. Uh, and uh, she says, well, I'll submit, but first let me try on your wings. And then she takes flight and evades them. And there's a great essay by uh, James M. Robinson about this mytheme and how it underlies various um, stories and snippets in the New Testament, including um, Herod's attempt to kill the infant Jesus and uh, Revelation 12 and um, some other stuff in there. Uh, and uh, so the uh, so this is a very ancient piece of mythology, too. Happens at the beginning of the world, happens at the end. Uh, and wh- how this bears on whether the woman clothed with the sun, standing on the moon and crowned with the stars is supposed to be Mary. That is unclear because uh, there's not a whole lot in the book of Revelation suggesting that the writer knew anything about the gospel story. It does speak of Jesus having been crucified in Jerusalem. Uh, And uh, uh, that, uh, however, is in chapter 11, which there is reason to think was an interpolation, the little scroll passage. Okay, so here we have, what we do have is the birth of this messianic child or royal or divine child uh, who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. That fits the original Zeus business, right? That may not even be a reference to the birth of Jesus, uh, whereas the woman clothed of the sun may be Rhea, the Titaness. And uh, it's uh, kind of a an embarrassment of riches. It's kind of hard to tell exactly uh, what means what. I uh, have to admit, I do not know what fundamentalists and dispensationalists think this means. It's, uh, though the one, one view, I guess, is probably popular among them, is that, uh, that the woman clothed with the sun is the Christian church, uh, or Israel, or somehow both. 
But then again, what about this apparent birth of of Jesus in the latter days? I, I have to admit, I just am not familiar enough with fundamentalist interpretations. Um, but uh, in a way, some of them, like uh, Arthur Pink, uh, a reformed or uh, Presbyterian, uh, one of the other Calvinist uh, exegete, in his book, The Antichrist, has um, this double reference theory uh, where he says that the various Old Testament prophecies, and I guess he probably applies this to Revelation, it's been a while since I read it, that there was a meaning intended for contemporary readers, but once their time passes, there's a second fulfillment for the end of the age. Of course, fundamentalists can't admit that uh, the contemporary readers correctly understood these texts as about being both of contemporary relevance and eschatological in their reference because they thought they were living in the last days. They didn't anticipate thousands of years separating them. Uh, So um, there's some rambling uh, comments on it, Chris. I hope that's somewhat helpful. Uh, uh, let's see here. This one, or these next ones, are from Mary Elizabeth Sarks. And I uh, don't think I've heard from her before, so welcome to the old geek. Um, uh, in recounting Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, Luke fifteen twenty three has the son return and the father say, Bring the fatted calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. I'm asking you about the word for kill. My chocolate almond says, huh? Says the English kill translates Luke's Greek, uh, thusate. Uh, This English translation goes back to William Tyndall in 1543. Uh, uh, Let's see, uh, thuo comes up a lot in non-biblical Greek as the word that widely denotes sacrificing an animal in Greco-Roman religious rites. Pagan people were all the time thuoing animals to this god or that one. Perseus reveals uh, that... uh, the Jewish Josephus uses thuo many times, often as uh, uh, thuo to the gods. Even Luke uses it in this sense in Luke 22, 7. Uh, the day of unleavened bread came on which the Passover must be sacrificed. Ed day uh, thuesan. Or Thuasai, sorry, I mixed up the parenthesis there. Uh, in the prodigal son parable, it seems natural to read Thuo in its common sense as meaning an instruction to sacrifice the calf and a rite of religious thanks for the prodigal son's return. Did Luke and his hearers understand Thuo in the common sense of sacrifice to God? Uh, did Tyndall and later English translators know this? Did they care? Uh, This Thuo business is an example of the thing I enjoy most about the mythicist reading of Christian origins. What Christianity shares with other ancient religions is not the contents of the myth stories, but the ideas and technical vocabulary of ancient theology. Pagans killed animals as thank offerings to their magic invisible beings. Our guys killed animals as thank offerings to our our magic invisible being. If you're not persuaded 
translated by Luke 15 compare Jewish religious practice in Jerusalem with pagan practice in Rome or Athens. Uh, uh, temple, temple. Priests, priests. Sacrifice, sacrifice. Sanctuary of their God, sanctuary of our God. Our religion was a product of its time and place. Christianity is an ancient pagan religion. Should we not stop people of the street and explain this interesting insight to them? Well, if you want to get arrested as a troublemaker, maybe so. Of course, I know you're kidding about that. I have uh, one qualm about this. It would make sense as a thank offering, but, well, two qualms, actually. Uh, the, um, the gripe of the older son about this, why are you taking such trouble for this brat who wasted half your money? Uh, I mean, I, you're giving him the big feast. I've been here faithfully serving you for years. You never even gave me a goat to roast and share with my uh, friends. Uh, and uh, the, the dad says, look, uh, you have been with me all that time, but everything I have is yours. I never withheld anything from you. Well, the comparison to me implies they're just uh, butchering and uh, and roasting or whatever the uh, the fatted calf for a celebratory feast. Of, uh, I know that that isn't a clincher, but the... Um, the uh, reference to it simply being a a party with a dinner party in the one case, the th hypothetical feast of the elder son, and uh, it makes me wonder if any more than that is intended with the, uh, the fatted calf or the returned prodigal. The second thing is, according to Jewish law, assuming people were following it, and that wasn't all just theoretical, who knows, you couldn't offer a sacrifice anymore outside of the Jerusalem temple. Deuteronomy had taken care of that. If you look at the covenant code in uh, the chapters uh, 20 and so on, in uh, Exodus, you, you do find provision made for local altars, which are kind of like backyard barbecue grills. Uh, you could, um, anytime you ate meat, it was uh, a, also a sacrifice to God. But that's done away with in Deuteronomy, which centralizes worship in Jerusalem, or at least tried to, right? For centuries afterward, there were Jewish temples in Egypt and other places. But assuming that's what Luke has in mind, he he wouldn't have been uh, depicting uh, the uh, the sacrifice, uh, the, I'm sorry, the, the butchering as a sacrifice of gratitude, because uh, the time for that was, was over. I mean, he could have gone to Jerusalem and done it, but you don't get the impression that's intended either. So, let's see, let's see, um, uh, John, uh, the apostle and evangelist, presumably, says the relationship Paul identifies in Galatians 3, 13 through 14, between Christ's crucifixion and Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23, is interesting because it is one of the few places in the typology argument where a mythicist might argue the New Testament crucifixion act itself is typology. Isaiah 53 mentions the suffering servant, but not specifically crucifixion. 
Um, here's Galatians 3, 13 through 14 from the New King James Version. Uh, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Um, Deuteronomy 21, 22-23 from the Modern English Version. Uh, if a man is committed a sin worthy of death and is executed and you hang him on a tree, then his body must not remain all night on the tree, but you must bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, so that your land may not be defiled, which the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." You understand there, I'm sure, that uh, Deuteronomy is talking about crucifying a living man, but hanging up for display a man who has been executed. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense to uh, to uh, take him down at, at sunset, because uh, crucifixion of a living man uh, would be intended, as it was with the Romans, uh, to uh, stretch out the agonizing death over days. So you'd, you'd never have this, which is something that makes me wonder about the crucifixion accounts. Uh, would the Romans have honored this custom, which wouldn't literally apply anyway, since they weren't hanging up dead guys? Okay, anyway, uh, the first Christians may have discovered a celestial Christ was crucified through an allegorical reading of Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. Also, there is the implicit piercing of hands and feet, Mark 20, uh, what, uh, hands and feet in Mark 24, uh, Psalm 22, 16b. You know, it never says in any gospel in the crucifixion account that Jesus was nailed to the cross. The only place that comes up albeit by inevitable inference, is John 20, where Thomas wants to see the nail holes in his hands, right? But it never says uh, in, in the actual crucifixion accounts that he was nailed to the cross, though some bad translations put it that way. But Psalm 22, 16b, you know, they've pierced my hands and feet. Or you could translate, like a lion, my hands and feet. Of course, that's, that's yanked out of context. It doesn't, he's talking about wild, his uh, opponents are like wild animals uh, cornering him. Okay, the Septuagint, Jewish translation of the Hebrew Bible into Koine Greek, made before the Common Era, has uh, Oruxan, trying to read this to my, oh, that's better, um, I think, oh man, new glasses time, keras mu, uh, kai uh, podas, they have dug my hands and feet, which some commentators argue could be um, understood in the general sense as pierced. Ah, uh, uh, yes, uh, Strauss said, when we find details in the life of Jesus, evidently sketched after the pattern of these prophecies and prototypes, we cannot but suspect that they are rather mythical than historical. Life of Jesus Critically Examined, page 89. Oh, everybody got to read that book. 
if not committed to memory. Uh, what do you think of typology and the actual act of crucifixion in the New Testament? Well, um, as I've already said, jumping the gun, I think that uh, there is a bit of a problem with uh, the crucifixion account, though I've never heard this mentioned. Maybe it's just because it's a crazy rant by me, but Roman crucifixion was designed to keep the body up there as long as the poor guy was dying uh, to prolong the death. Now, would they, in in uh, Jerusalem, actually cut that short uh, in obedience to a law that wasn't really about that kind of crucifixion? Uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, kind of makes you wonder. Uh, and, and I mentioned... Uh, the gospel crucifixion accounts do not mention nails, uh, though the uh, whoever wrote the uh, Doubting Thomas story assumed that uh, he was nailed to the cross. But that wasn't always the case. Sometimes people were simply tied to the cross, and sometimes they were tied around the wrists but nailed through the palm. Uh, so, um, you know, who, who knows? Uh, but... Uh, this becomes relevant when you're talking about the fraud, I mean the uh, Shroud of Turin uh, and its uh, marks. Typology is uh, a very interesting thing uh, because it points out in a pre-critical way striking correspondences between stories. Typology really has to do not with uh Na uh, with uh, non-narrative quotes like lines from the Psalms or the Prophets, but rather uh, narrated events, the, the big classic being uh, Joseph and his brethren. Uh, he's got uh, 11 brethren, though only 10 are around when they betray him. Uh, and uh, then later on, after they think he's dead, he appears alive to them and uh, forgives them and uh, he rises to become to rule at the right hand of the pharaoh and so on uh, well of course uh, you you really have to see the parallel with jesus betrayed or deserted by the disciples uh, then he uh, is given royal honors in heaven reveals himself to these people afterward and forgives them and, and so forth now, why that correspondence? Typology said that you had type and anti-type. You had an image uh, 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 acted out in the first events as a kind of acted prophecy of what would happen someday. So they would say, oh yeah, all of this happened to Joseph, and uh, and uh, all of it happened to Jesus. And the one was a kind of a charade uh, pointing to the other. Now, that doesn't mean, or or if it did, it's ridiculous, that people reading the story of Joseph would anticipate the Messiah undergoing this, right? The, the idea, I think, was that in retrospect, after the fact, you would say, wow, look at this. You notice how what happened to Jesus so mirrors what happened to Joseph? Well, that's got to be a kind of fulfilled prophecy by way of, uh, of typology. Well, in a in a critical age, what you notice is 
Maybe what happened was that somebody simply rewrote the very well-known story of Joseph uh, into that of Jesus and various other ones, too. Uh, And that's what Strauss is getting at. When you have these striking correspondences, uh, it looks more likely that uh, someone has simply rewritten the thing, like the stories where Elijah uh, feeds the multitude, uh, and then Jesus does in the same sort of circumstances. What's more likely that such a thing happened twice or even once, or that somebody copied a a well-known old story into this, or Jesus sleeping in the boat before he stills the storm. There's a lot of correspondence between that and the story of Jonah. You just have to uh, wonder if the uh, New Testament story is a rewrite of the old. And of course, I think this happened wholesale. Now, I don't suppose you could prove that, but uh, the the thing is, it certainly undermines any kind of uh, apologetic appeal to the facticity of these these uh, these narratives. Um, so, okay, thank you, John. Now, this might take a little explaining. Greetings, noble Derlethophile. Very happy to, happy to hear your passing mention of the August one in the last Bible Geek podcast, actually a few ago now, right? I love his Solar Ponds books. I could talk at length on that subject. Uh, that plus his Lovecraft work uh, make me a huge Derleth fan. What a hero, but on to the geekery. Now, what's he talking about? Probably a bunch of you do know, but just in case you don't, it's a reference to August Derleth. Uh, who was uh, kind of a disciple of Lovecraft, a correspondent of his, uh, who he and uh, Donald Wandry, after Lovecraft's death, founded Arkham House uh, Publishers to preserve Lovecraft's stories, which originally appeared in pulp magazines in the 30s, especially 20s and 30s, uh, Weird Tales, and um, to make them available. And of course, they've been reprinted zillions of times since then. Well, Derleth just loved Lovecraft's material. His primary thing was he was like a uh, a naturalist and a writer of historical drama, much of it based on the history of Wisconsin, where he, he lived. And um, he was a poet also, and uh, this guy was really a dynamo. He uh, just did all kinds of stuff, and among them was uh, he did a whole bunch of uh, Arthur Conan Doyle pastiches, uh, pastiches of Sherlock Holmes, uh, and uh, his is sort of his character Solar Ponds is a like a latter day successor to Holmes, Holmes, but it's it's like it's it's manifest he's not trying to hide the fact that this is really supposed to be sherlock holmes and dr watson and uh and uh, it's uh, he did a bunch of them and uh there's a whole cottage industry not only of people pastiching uh, Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories, but of Derleth's Solar Pond stories. They have their own charm. And I must confess to having written a couple of these myself. Uh, and uh, I've also indulged in writing a couple of Karnacki occult detective stories. They are a lot of fun. And so um, that's who we're talking about here. But on to the geekery.
and uh, this is, uh, ooh, did I even say the name? Wait a minute, where where are they? Wait a minute. Yeah, this is kind of a long one. I hate to not mention the uh the name first though. Uh Faraday. Okay, uh, a pen name, but you know, so what? Uh I used one today too. Um okay. Uh you asked for our life stories. I used to be a Mormon apologist. I had a thousand page pro Mormon website back in the nineteen nineties when such things were rare and served a mission, was branch president uh, of at the time. Um, but I have this autistic obsession with things making sense. So after 34 years, I took the well-trodden path out of the church. For the next 15 years, I saw Jesus as a misunderstood reformer. I like to think Jesus was interested in a geographical kingdom based on the law of Moses where there were judges but not kings. So son of man would equal the common man. But I finally lost any faith in Jesus because I could not get past him entering Jerusalem as a king on a donkey. Yeah, maybe he was saying the common man is now king, but that's how dictators talk. Uh... I am your humble servant, merely your secretary. Now do what I say. Trying to make sense of that guy feels like chasing an optical illusion. So, Mormonism taught me three things. One, an allergy to the supernatural. I'm still fascinated by the Bible, but I only care for the parts that can be interpreted in a non-supernatural way. I have zero interest in Matthew, Luke, Paul, etc. I just don't find them credible at all, though Mark intrigues me. Two, extreme skepticism about interpreting scripture. I'm becoming more and more a mythicist. Not because I think Jesus didn't exist, I like to think he did, but because I think drawing any conclusions about him is extremely dangerous. However, I think myths are very useful as thought experiments. Like, what would happen today if... Three, interest in economics. What people say they believe seems very problematic to me, but we can always follow the money. For example, Mormonism is easily explained by money. Uh, more money. Uh, uh, it survives as it has, it survives as it has very good income. The periods of mass conversion, the 1830s and the 1960s, were for economic reasons. The Utah faction beat the others for economic reasons. Changes in doctrine always come for economic reasons, etc. I have a sneaking hunch you might be thinking of the change in policy so that uh, uh, blacks could become Melchizedek priests, which just conveniently coincided with the IRS saying, unless you give equal access to all ethnicities, you're losing your tax-exempt status. Oh, well, what do you know? Uh, looks like God has something new to say to us, too. Anyway, my questions whittled down from a much longer list. One, wouldn't a preacher target people who can write? 
What do you think of Rodney Stark's essay, Early Christianity, Opiate of the Privileged? In it, he argues that preachers and followers need to eat, so successful religions always arise in the middle classes. He then argues that this was true for Christianity. This, of course, has implications for literacy. Even if just a tiny proportion of people were educated, as Bart Ehrman often points out, a preacher with a message would need to target those people. Thoughts? Uh, well, yeah, that could be. I mean, Jesus is shown uh, su- as supported by people with means. Lazarus, uh, Mary Magdalene, and the other Galilean women, uh, and, and so forth. It, it plainly says, I think in Luke 8, that these women provided for Jesus and the disciples from their own funds. So, uh, yeah. And uh, Paul uh, refers to the household of Stephanus and others who had uh, congregations meeting in their homes. These people were not told to give up all they owned, right? They they were charitable, though. And uh, that's, I guess, what uh, Stark is talking about, though. I've not read that essay. I have read his great book, The Rise of Christianity, but uh, I'm not familiar with this essay. Okay, uh, this question led me down a very deep rabbit hole. Like, could Mark be reliable? Maybe the evidence for a late date is really evidence for an early date. Maybe Mark was written in A.D. 42 based on events from A.D. 36 using notes written at the time. It's not proof, of course, just a hobby. Uh, Well, I don't really... Okay, so you're... Wait a minute now. Mark would be early because it must have been written for an affluent audience, and that would have come early, right? Well, you could make that statement about all the Gospels. I, I don't think there's any uh, any uh, reason to make that real early. All, all um, Stark's argument would imply is that from the start, there were wealthy, or at least well-off people, and uh, that didn't... Uh, decline later as far as we know um oh yeah question what question one i thought that was okay and a second question one two creations or the enuma elish i routinely hear people argue that genesis one through two must include two different accounts of the same creation i do not understand why is it not based on the enuma elish the Enuma Elish had a three-stage creation. Of course, you know that's the Babylonian creation account. One, higher gods, abstract forces of nature. Two, lower gods, like landlords who claim the authority of gods. Three, slaves to do their work. And we see the same thing in Genesis. One, the council of the gods, light and dark, land and water. Two, they create man to be a landlord, a landlord who represents the gods, a lord god. Three, this lord god then creates other men as slaves to serve him. I don't see the hierarchy there um, in in, uh, Genesis. I mean, I see the gods creating human beings as uh, servants or slaves. Okay, um... He goes on, I see the same thing in every society since the beginning of time. Landlords claim to represent God, that is, their kings, and they in turn create or organize the servant class. 
Take, for example, Gilgamesh. We have the gods. We have the landlord Gilgamesh, who is one-third god, so he is a lord god. And we have him find the wild man Enkidu to, Enkidu to do his work for him. Uh, is that what he does, or isn't he just sort of his partner, like Batman and Robin? I suppose my Mormon upbringing makes this seem obvious to me. Mormons are comfortable with multiple gods, with humans rising to become like gods, and with creation in Genesis being interpreted as organization. So I see the creation of man in Genesis 2 as just like Gilgamesh, the landlord who is one-third god, grabbing Enkidu and civilizing him to be a servant. Gods make lord gods, that is kings, and then kings. Kings create slaves. It seems to my ignorant reading that whenever we see the word God on its own in Genesis 1 through 4, this God is always right. But when we see the term Lord God, this is the guy who makes human mistakes. He walks in the garden and does not know where Adam is. He plays favorites with Cain and Abel. He promises Adam he will die if he eats the fruit, but does not go through with it, etc. God is the forces of nature, but land Lord God is just the landlord who claims to represent uh, God. What thinks the geek? Well, uh, you know, Yahweh is what lurks behind the Lord in all capitals. Uh, it, it, Lord is not a translation of it. Lord is a translation of Adonai, which appears in translation as Lord with ordinary capitalization. But the the passages you're referring to are um, are Yahweh passages. Yahweh Elohim did this and that. So I, I think that's uh, an Achilles heel to that view, probably. But you certainly do have Yahweh pictured as limited in knowledge and in power, threatened by the fact that with the serpent's help, the man and the woman have gone around him and uh, learned about the, the knowledge of everything, including procreation, which uh, forces Yahweh in company with the other gods to kick the humans out of the Garden of Eden, because if they don't and they eat the tree of immortality, they are going to become rival gods who can reproduce at will and live forever, and the gods don't want the competition. Uh, three, was Judges edited to reverse its messages, its message? I remember reading in Wikipedia, so it must be true, that part of Judges at the end, where society is in chaos, should really be at the beginning. That is, the book originally describes a system of judges that worked well, turning early chaos into later order. But somebody made changes to give the opposite meaning, saying you need a strong king because judges lead to chaos. Is that a fair assessment? Um, I think something like that is true, but the uh, period of the judges, there is a major reversal in judges. Uh, the Deuteronomic uh, theology is imposed on the stories. The various stories of the judges, who are generals and uh, saints and so on, or in one case a demigod, Samson, these are stories that concern 
individual Israelite tribes or groups of tribes, not even the whole of Israel. And uh, they they uh, gain independence against Canaanite uh, oppressors. Uh, so it's their their valiant courage and fidelity to God that uh, induces him to give them victory that they could not have gained by simple human effort. Uh, that's uh, that forms the graft point. Well, actually, even that's not quite true. Samson wins because he's he's a demigod. He's like Hercules. Uh, uh, Gideon wins because of strategy. Uh, similarly, David wins because of strategy. But the Deuteronomic theology wants us to view these surprise upset victories as uh, what I just said. I'm jumping the gun there that the arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. In human weakness, God's power is made manifest. So that's what you should trust. Well, that is an imposition on the stories, as is the general framework that says, well, uh, as of Joshua, the uh, the whole Canaanite seaboard was uh, ethnically cleansed of all those uh, pesky uh, Edomites, Moabites, Canaanites, etc., and Israel was free to occupy the land. But they got uh, complacent, and they uh, began to assimilate to the idolatry and the paganism of the people they had supposedly wiped out. So I don't know where they were getting it. But they went far from God and welched on the covenant with him. And so God said, well, if that's the way you want it, uh, here's you, know, you can have the result. And they were then oppressed by the, the bad guys until this wake-up call woke them up and they decided, look, this has happened because we were faithless. Let's uh, repent and cry out to God and maybe he'll give us another chance and he does but the stories themselves have nothing about that that's just the editorial frame it says it repeats that formula at the beginning of all of these stories as if to pre-interpret them for us just as Luke does with his parables he told them a parable to illustrate that you mustn't give up on praying but you know, keep keep going at it. Same sort of thing here. So uh, the Deuteronomic redactor has used earlier stories that didn't fit his agenda. So yeah, the point has been reduced, uh, re, uh, reversed. But in terms of the chronology, uh, the uh, the book of Judges ends with this horrendous mess. Uh, where the whole thing descends into chaos after uh, this guy, after these uh, Benjaminites gang rape this guy's concubine and killer, and uh, he summons the tribes of Israel to to take revenge on all the Benjaminites, and then they nearly exterminate all of them. And uh, they say, well, wait a minute, we can't have the whole tribe vanish, uh, but uh, what are we going to do? And so they go steal a bunch of virgins from another uh, place to marry the remaining Benjaminite men, and oh my God, it gets worse and worse. And it repeatedly says uh, uh, that there was no uh, king in the land. Everybody did what was right in his own own eyes. Uh, and this seems to be a preparation 
uh, for the monarchy in the next part of the same book, which is namely 1 Samuel. It's a, just a direct continuation of Judges by the same editors. And in that, the people say, well, we, we've had it. Let's have a king. Uh, to restore order. And so there's a story about how Saul becomes king and he's the blessed of God. And then he screws up and David becomes God's anointed king. And yet these guys are described in very insulting, demeaning terms. Uh, and the kings, as you go on into Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, the kings become a bunch of bums leading Israel and Judah into idolatry. So what do we got going on here? Well, there's a pro monarchy strain in it uh, that says, well, the judges were able to win some victories, but they, they didn't have enough influence to stem the tide of chaos, but the kings did. Uh, but they went bad, and that's the point where you have priestly, a priestly agenda. Eh, the kings are no damn good. How about if we trust the high priests instead? And that kind of fits the Babylonian conquest, because there weren't any kings for hundreds of years. The, uh, the autonomous local government was that of high priests. So I go into this a bit in Unholy Fable. Uh, unholy, why do I keep calling that? Is that is it the uh, Freudian slip? I guess it is. Yeah. Oh, let's see. Um, here's one from Matt Cicero. Um, any accent you like would be fine. Fine. Uh, Cicero, how about Italian? I'm uh, sure I'm not the first to notice some similarities between the story of Saul and the ghost of Samuel, 1 Samuel 28, and Odysseus and the ghost of Tiresias, the Odyssey, book 11. I was wondering if there could have been any connection between the two. Also, uh, just how common the belief was it that the dead could be summoned and that they would have the ability to predict the future if they were successfully raised? Well, actually, yeah, that's necromancy. You don't really need a borrowing in this case because it was a general belief uh, that and a general practice, though that doesn't mean, if there are other reasons to think so, that there was an actual literary borrowing. Let's go on with it. Odysseus awakes in the shade of Tiresias to inquire about uh, his uh, future journey home. Saul raises the spirit of a Samuel with the assistance of the witch of Endor so uh, that he could ask about a future battle. Both ghosts ask why the supplicant had come. Samuel, why hast thou disquieted me to bring me up? Tiresias, why have you left the light of day and come down to visit the dead in this sad place? Coming from presumably prescient spirits, these questions seem odd. <laughs> uh, perhaps they would adjust the following form. Yeah, that that's great. You know, you, <laughs> you think Odysseus and Saul would say, "Well, this this is obviously a waste of time. You don't even know this. <laughs> Forget it." That's great. I never thought of that. Um, also, both the ghosts are depicted as correctly prophesying the time and the manner of uh, their questioner's death. Uh, Samuel, 
Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with thee into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow thou, sh thou and thy sons shall be with me. Tiresias, as for yourself, death shall come to you from the sea, and your life shall ebb away very gently when you are full of years and peace of mind, and your people shall bless you. Um... And this seems to indicate that the author of First Samuel thought the spirits of the dead, or perhaps only those of dead prophets, could be reliable sources of intelligence on the future events. Uh, however, I don't recall any other biblical mentions of this technique being used. Uh, appreciate any illumination you can offer. I love the show. Thank you, Matt. Uh, uh, it was widely believed that uh, the dead, but particularly prominent dead could tell your fortune uh, when you have mention of the sacred graves of the matriarchs uh, in Genesis they buried uh, Rachel or whichever one it was underneath uh, the oak and it was known as uh, uh, Alan Bacchus the, the oak of weeping well you would go there to ritually mourn the death of the matriarch and probably uh, ask for um, her uh, her predictions uh, the um, but the, it was more broad than that because the teraphim uh, statues uh, apparently of your own ancestors that you had in your house they could be life size as in a story of David who uh, whose wife uses one to put under the blankets to make Saul's agents think David is asleep there uh, or they could be little ones uh, like you'd put on the mantelpiece. Uh, and uh, these were the household gods, like uh, uh, Re Rebecca swipes from Laban and so on. Uh, and uh, the, apparently the point is they corresponded to the Rephaim, the ghosts of the dead, uh, floating around in the Tahom, the, the vast ocean underneath the flat earth. Job talks about them located in the uh, in the. the in the subterranean ocean and you kept them around as uh, as oracles also you probably would have made offerings to them like in any ancestor worshiping uh, community uh, and uh, they would make sure things went well for you and uh, among other things they could tell your your future Isaiah somewhere uh, condemns the practice of necromancy. Uh, he says, um, should a people consult uh, the dead on behalf of the living and not consult their God? Well, how would you do that? Well, there were uh, oracle devices, the Urim and Thummim, which were apparently one black and one white stone or two stones white on one side and black on the other, and it would be kind of like throwing the dice and you'd get a yes or no answer to a particular question. Sort of like the uh, the eight ball toy. Uh, and uh, this was believed to be able to tell your fortune. Also the ephod, which was uh, some kind of either an image or a, a breastplate with jewels on it that were somehow manipulated uh, like a Ouija board to uh, tell your f future. Uh, it may have been um, worn by a 
an oracle priest or it may have been put on an image of Jehovah himself. Uh, impossible to say, could be both. And um, so there were ways, um, legitimate ways, to seek an oracle of the future. And in fact, in the great story of Saul and the Witch of Endor, uh, someone has persuaded him, no doubt Saul, uh, Samuel, I should say, to shut down all the necromancers, the channelers, uh, the spirit mediums, uh, and uh, and he did it. And when he cannot get word about the outcome of tomorrow's battle against the Philistines by the sanct the sanctioned means, he, he gets uh, just. Uh, nobody picks up on the other end of the phone when he tries the Urim and Thummim and the Ephod. So he says, are there still any of those uh, necromancers around? Well, sire, you shut them all down, but I do know of one. And so they go to her. And she's alarmed when she realizes who it is because she thinks, oh my God, this is a sting operation. He's going to have me arrested and killed. Remember, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Well, that's part of that. Now, why is that going on? Well, as with a canon of scripture, to restrict the source of prophecy, you do stuff like this. There are legitimate means of revelation, sources of revelation, but they don't include this. Just like the New Testament has the Gospel of Matthew, but doesn't have the Gospel of the Egyptians, right? Well, we don't want you reading the ideas in, in that Gospel. Uh, you can read First and Second Peter, but not Third and Fourth Peter. No, no, that's that's uh, Jewish legalism in the one, it's Gnosticism in the other. No, no, no. Uh, those can't be by Peter. They're fake. Don't read them. Uh, so uh, same thing here. Uh, you, uh, you don't want the kind of things said that necromancers say. We want to control the content of Revelation. Uh, you see that in Corinth, right? Though we have people who speak in tongues and people who interpret tongues. We have people that speak prophecy and uh, people who evaluate it, those who discern spirits and so on. So I, I think that's what's uh, going on there. Uh, let's see. Um, well, I think that'll be it for today, and I uh, thank you for being with me on another exciting episode of The Bible Geek, and I will see you, I hope and think, uh, tomorrow for another uh, rip-roaring, thrill-a-minute episode of The Bible Geek. Mm -hmm.